This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 19th of January 2022 at home in Wicklow. And it was a difficult episode to record, not from a technical point of view, that was easy, but thematically the the focus of the episode was the debate around masculinity and the debate around male violence towards women as an expression of toxic masculinity. Uh, and this is a debate that has been raging in Ireland in the last week um, after the murder of a young woman while she was out running uh, just a week ago. Um, I wanted to reflect on what had happened and reflect on the debate and the, you know, the vast exchange of opinions around where masculinity is at and how women feel unsafe. And I just wanted to try and contribute something useful, I hope, to the conversation from a male point of view without being tone deaf and without invalidating the 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 genuine and um justified fear that many women are experiencing uh so this episode goes to that place uh it has relevance not just for people in ireland but i think uh everywhere and i i you know i try to keep it in a in a, in a safe space in terms of what i discuss and i try to make it coherent uh, it's up to you to decide whether I have done that or not. But um, yeah, I, I think I, I think I've had a good look at it, and I think I've offered up something accessible and thought provoking, and considered, um, and as I said, hopefully of use. So that's what's coming up. I don't know if you could say it's something to look forward to exactly, but I think it is something important. I think it hopefully it's something that is. Of interest to you uh, and I do think it's very relevant if we want to um, go forward with um, a, a better sort of understanding of how you know genders interact with each other and how masculinity is being viewed at this moment okay I'll talk to you real soon cheers Ooh, not gonna change my mind leaving the dream Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome. How are you today? Just uh, just take a beat. Check in with yourself. Check that uh, emotional pulse, that psychological pulse. Check your actual pulse just to make sure you're still alive, you're still with us. Um, I'm going to try to avoid my... My usual meandering, <laughs> my my usual meandering and uh, dropping in little moments from my week um, to begin this episode because I sort of want to get right into the the meat of it and I want to yeah I just want to try and be present and contribute to a very difficult conversation that's happening in Ireland at the moment but uh, but but is a conversation that is relevant 
anywhere, uh, relevant anywhere men and women coexist, which the last time I checked was this entire planet uh, and this entire history of human existence. So I have to begin at the at the beginning of the the sort of the the catalyst for this conversation. So yesterday in Ireland, um, you know, at the time of recording this podcast, yesterday, yesterday a young woman was laid to rest. A funeral took place, and a woman was buried. She was only twenty-three. Her name was Ashleen Murphy, and she was a young woman at the start of her teaching career. She taught first-class students. That would be kids around six or seven years of age. She was also a musician. And a week ago, today, she went for a run at four o'clock in the afternoon and was murdered. And this horrific crime, this terrible loss of life, this dark and horrific act of violence against a woman has triggered an enormous outpouring of anger and and grief uh, across across Ireland and across the sort of my sense is across the sort of the Irish diaspora as well um, it's reached sort of Irish people everywhere um, it's probably it, it has definitely reached our, our neighbours across the Irish Sea in, in England in the United Kingdom um, and yeah it's definitely been it's definitely been um, a sort of a a a fuse that has set light to something that has been I don't know I mean has it has it always been simmering but it's certainly something that has exploded um, and there has been an eruption of of discourse and reaction across media and across social media and I think in relationships um, families partnerships up and down the country um so yeah that's the that's the narrative a week ago a young woman really in that very early stage of adulthood and career and the beginning of the fulfillment of potential um that woman was alive um and had no reason to believe she wouldn't be alive a week later but she has been taken and people close to her her family her friends other loved ones her colleagues at the school where she worked her pupils um and then the 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 ripple outwards of anyone who cares about such things primarily the women of of ireland and then anyone else who is bothered and concerned by this and that would include i can assure you very many men um a significant majority of men i would argue and the range of emotions um feelings of hurt feelings of loss grief 
anger, maybe even rage, a sense of helplessness, perhaps a sense of frustration and other other emotions I haven't articulated and other responses and reactions I haven't articulated. Um, and I found myself wondering at the time last week when this news emerged, apart from the initial, my initial reaction of, I don't know, I mean, it, 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 I, th- I think it would be disingenuous to say I was shocked. I think, um, sadly, these crimes happen. They continue to happen. They have happened for, for years. It's, you know, it's male on female violence. It's male on male violence. Every day there's, it feels like there's, you know, there's never any shortage of stories of incidents like these. So it would be wrong to say I was shocked, but you feel that sort of disappointment you feel that sadness. Um, you're, you know, when you stop to sort of look at the details of any of these cases, your, you know, your heart goes out to the the, the people involved. Um, the well, I mean, when I say that, I mean you know, primarily you're thinking about the the family members and friends and loved ones of the of the victim. Um, and I'll I'll you know I'll return. I'm going to touch on in the podcast some thoughts about. Um, maybe how to frame or look at perpetrators of this crime um, and ha- I really want to have a look at the sort of the discourse around this um, and to really avoid the sort of zero sum uh, nature of how a lot of the discourse has been presented the if you're not this you're that um, and the hundred percent or nothing approach of viewing this. Now that said, you have to acknowledge within the discourse the emotional context. I mean, last week and and still the the sort of emotionality and the intensity of feeling around this particular incident informed and fueled a lot of the the reaction and response and. That is necessary. It's necessary to to find release. It's necessary to 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 vent. It's necessary to, you know, rend garments and pull hair and scream and cry and roar to release that that pain, and to express it. Um, but it's probably not the time to make decisions. It's probably not the time to make. Um, you know, huge assertions of conviction about about men. Um, certainly, condemnation of the individual who committed the crime is a very natural starting point. Um, anyway, look, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I, I want to sort of explore this properly. Um, I was going to make the point that after I had you know digested that news last week um hardly digested but just you know learnt of the incident and then really I, I probably got distracted by the reaction um more than the incident and i found myself wondering like why that particular murder um became has shown itself to be such a catalyst at this moment 
And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was wondering, is it pandemic related? Like the, the pandemic has put such pressure on so many of us um, and applied such a, a squeeze on our, our instinct for connectivity and it's put such a squeeze on our ability to be socially interactive, to express our social selves in real life. Um, and that's only one aspect of it. Of course, there's been, uh, for many people, a loss of a loss of income, a loss of earnings, a loss, a loss of, you know, the ability to, to earn a living. And so there's that that pressure is in the mix as well. Um you know, ferocious amount of uh, artists, performers, singers, actors, dancers. I mean, the arts have taken a massive hit here in Ireland anyway. Um, but lots of people, lots of people have been affected adversely. And I think, you know, broadly speaking, there is, a te- you know, there's a real deep fatigue with the the implications of COVID and there and I haven't even mentioned the the people who've actually lost family members to COVID or who have been prevented from saying their proper farewells um, and, you know, prevented from being given the opportunity to grieve properly um, for people who've been lost because of the pandemic, um, whether that's been because of restrictions or because of COVID infections themselves. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, so there's a... Maybe there is a sense that you know that that it, it it's been a bit of a pressure cooker, and I don't know. I was trying to sort of think about it this morning before before pressing record, and I was just kind of wondering, like this, you know, suddenly this horrific um, incident happens last week, and it's kind of like on top of everything else. Maybe, maybe it's just like the sense of disgust or that sense of frustration, the the exasperation and the fury really to think, all right, so the pandemic has has stopped us from doing so many things. It's put a lid on so much activity. It's prevented us from, you know, living normally, whatever that is. But it's prevented us from moving freely, interacting freely, from you know, from hitting our usual marks, if you want to put it that way, from living out our normal, you know, our normal lives, whatever that is for you, going to the places you normally go, seeing the people you normally see, um, and all that's been there, and yet there's still time to kill women. There's still time to hate women. There's still time for a man to wield his power over a woman. Um, and I understand that uh, to just throw this into the conversation, like domestic violence uh, statistics have have risen um, significantly or disturbingly during the pandemic period. Um, I mean, it's it, it, it's a, it's part it's part of this conversation, I suppose. But maybe anyway, the point I'm making is maybe that that maybe that's why it was a catalyst it's like oh my you know really really is this you know i i don't know and i mean i, I can't speak i mean I'm, I'm, that's just that's just speculation on my part um i just think it's interesting that at a certain point 
some there, there's a response like the one there has been or maybe you know it's because the you know it's a young woman such a young woman a woman of enormous sort of you know talent and potential and someone who's showing great sort of future promise there's no reason uh, to think she wasn't going to go on and you know have a long happy career in teaching maybe not you know maybe she would have you know got jaded with it but um but yeah um in any case uh i know when my wife came home last week um having been you know having been in the car and listening to the immediate sort of aftermath and response and reaction to the to the murder um she came in from work uh, and this would have been the the day afterwards so thursday of last week and you know i could see immediately she she was you know she was shook i could you know she just looked kind of pale and a little bit sort of haunted by what she'd been listening to and she had to kind of go straight back out the door to to um to do some other work and she said you know have you you know you know what's happened today and at that point i hadn't i hadn't really looked into it i mean i'd seen a headline the way you do the way you see these headlines and then you just go you move on i mean i hadn't been consuming you know much in the way of media and news that day but while she was out i went and kind of checked out what had happened a bit more deeply and um later on that evening we you know we had we had a long we had a long sort of conversation to sort of um I mean, I suppose I I just felt instinctively that you know my, my wife needed to to talk and needed to express something around this, and we had what I felt was a really um, instructive conversation, a very helpful conversation, a very you know balanced and non kind of non judgmental, non reactive uh, conversation to try and interrogate our own sort of responses and um you know i was certainly grateful to kind of you know i was grateful to my wife and grateful for the person she is that there was space there to really to really look at the implications and to look at the you know the narratives around incidents like this um but i mean i asked i I did ask my wife i said you know like well you know what, what you know what would you like to see what would you like to see and because she said she'd mentioned like you know you know men need to men need to do something and i i kind of returned to it and said well you know what, what would you like to see men doing and she just you know she she, she was kind of stumped for you know a couple of minutes and then she said well, i just i just like to hear from men and i'd like to hear men addressing other men and you know men sort of taking ownership i know this is how i'm phrasing it i I think that's what my wife was expressing a desire to see men taking ownership of of the narrative in a i suppose in a positive way if that's not too subjective a word um in a in a proactive way um and what my wife did say her like her prediction was you know in the you know in the following days she was predicting it's going to be women leading so much of the the sort of the public response it's going to be women leading vigils it's going to be women making public statements it's going to be women expressing their concerns and their anger 
and their you know their exhaustion their fatigue from you know sort of vicariously you know reliving these you know these 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 crimes and vicariously reliving the sort of the, the sense of, of victimhood uh, of women um and well in you know <laughs> it wasn't a self-fulfilling prophecy but indeed a few days later my, my wife who's a, a musician and a music therapist she she did just organize a little um informal vigil in our local town and she just put up a little notice on facebook the day before and she said at four o'clock i'll be i'll be playing an hour of bob dylan songs for you know anyone who'd like to come and you know bring a candle and wear a mask and um and just pay some respect to the the memory of ashling murphy and yeah so that happened and it was a you know you know what, what do you say it was a successful event i mean that's the wrong word but i mean people you know people came because there was a need a need to to honor Ashling Murphy a need to mark the moment a need to to stand up and make your presence felt and a need to go I do care and I do want to be a part of this response um so that was that was you know, that was a, that was a good thing just like the vigils all around the country facilitate that kind of community uh, expression of grief uh, shock sadness and they're expressing a care I, I would like to think um, so all around the country these vigils somehow there's an energy that gets redirected to the community of Tullamore where the, the crime happened and hopefully the people there don't feel isolated in their grief they don't feel uncared for or ignored Um yeah um and it was interesting uh to me um just that night um when my after my wife and i discussed my wife went to bed and i um i just felt like kind of switching off a bit i wanted to just sit down and watch a movie um and i had i had been planning to watch ridley scott's the last jewel um but i knew that that story centered around the the rape of a woman and i just thought like i just can't be i just didn't have the head on so i just that just felt it, <laughs> it felt wrong to go okay now i'll sit down and savor this um and instead i chose to watch uh a documentary a hbo documentary about tina turner simply called tina um which was made with her uh, participation uh, so an authorized documentary i suppose and it was actually great it was it was a it really it, i don't know it was it was something that i found very comforting and her story is a harrowing one by the way if you don't if you're not familiar with her story um and her the history of her marriage to ike turner and the way she was physically and sexually abused in that relationship um you know it, it, it it's the documentary is excellent i thought and you just come away well i came away with massive uh, renewed admiration for tina turner um regardless of you know regardless of you know her, her music 
uh, although you know some of her music I, I like enormously but my god she was such a a force um when you go back and see those clips from her probably her 20s and 30s um you know around the sort of the 60s early 70s um i think uh, beyonce owes her a huge debt she was formidable and just like electric on stage like such incredible energy such beauty such an amazing singer such a vibrant force um and then her story really is one of of survival it's one of survival it's one of resilience it's one of will um and ultimately it's one of triumph and it could, you know she's an older old woman now and has had her health issues in recent years um but it's it's a a great it's a great arc her story um and she really did you know reemerge uh, you know a phoenix from the flames if you'll forgive the cliche and it was a tonic to watch her story um that night um the following night i did watch um ridley scott's the last duel and um I actually thought it was really good and it was based on uh, a historic episode um historical episode from the middle ages in france and a sort of a a falling out between two um you know lords gentlemen well one was a a squire um who got promoted to be a knight and there was one of his sort of brothers in arms from the field of battle they were friends but the friendship became frayed in subsequent years the friend found favor with a, a higher up nobleman who favored him um and you know to, to, to the cost of the other nobleman and in the end the the friend raped the other guy's wife and it led to, it led to, ultimately, it led to, uh, you know, a court-sanctioned duel um, before the king. And it was, it was the last duel uh, in France because they had been sort of outdated, not outlawed, but they, they no longer took place. Um, but the, the respective um, combatants in the story are played by Matt Damon and Adam Driver, both two really great sort of repellent performances so really it's a, it's a nasty film about nasty men and the woman involved is Jodie Comer who as uh, the English actress who you might know from Killing Zoe is that what it's called have I got the right one Killing Eve no Killing Zoe is that other movie Killing Eve the series from a couple of years ago Sandra Oh is in that as well uh, and she's great she's a really great presence in the film and it's presented with that um, Kurosawa uh you know, three three person uh, point of view uh, on the narrative, which uh, Kurosawa presented in his movie Rashomon, which also centered around a rape, and so you get each person's uh, version of the narrative, and we're given Jodie Comer's last. And interestingly, um, Ben Affleck and Matt Ben Affleck is also in the movie. Uh, ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote the script, but for the third part, which was uh, Jodie Comer's point of view, they got uh, Nicole Holofacen, or I can't, I struggle to pronounce her name, 
Halofasener, um, who's a brilliant um, female writer and maker of movies, and she wrote that part. So, it, you know, it, ultimately it did feed back to the conversation about about power, about power over women. Um, and in that case, it was legal power because a woman was a man's property. And so when she was raped, her husband felt he felt aggrieved, not her. Like he wasn't concerned for her well-being or the slight on her or the abuse of her, the transgression, the violation. He was concerned about how it looked for him because she was his property. So someone had done something to his property and that's how he expressed it. Uh, when he found out his wife had been raped, he's like, well, this man, you know, you know, will, he, will this man just not leave me alone and stop doing things to me? Um, and so, I mean, there's been arguments that the, the, the dialogue and the script was tailored a bit too much to resonate with the concerns of today. But, uh, but I welcomed it and I thought it wasn't um, incongruous. Uh, I thought it was very well acted and, and worth checking out if you're interested. And I think it does sort of fit in with what we're talking about today. Um, so in any case, that was sort of the, that was how it kind of played out for us chronologically in this household last week. But I sort of want to look now at the, you know, the, the, the discourse that has emerged around, around male violence, around male violence and around misogyny and how this discourse has sort of played out um, you know, in the media here and on social media. And I think, as I said before, I think the discourse has reflected a general trend around, you know, all topics of concern, you know, in society, uh, all around the world, it seems. The, the polarizing nature of public discourse um, has become has become this kind of zero sum sort of dynamic it's like you're with us or you're against us you're either you know red state blue state you're either you know horrendously sort of right wing uh forward slash fascist forward slash intolerant forward slash bigoted or you're a woke um identity politics mad snowflake liberal drip uh, endlessly triggered wuss bag um and there's no there doesn't seem to be any in between where the the relevant issues are explored with real you know real nuanced interrogation with um you know with, with a commitment to 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 sort of um, transcend the 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 debate with a, a desire to transcend the animosity with a desire to transcend the finger pointing um, and everything seems to get everything seems to be sort of linchpinned into a very emotional uh, base a very emotional kind of plinth or foundation um, and it really, you know, it, it remains terribly sort of unhelpful um, if we can't sort of escape from that. Um, and it's not to, and you're probably going to hear me do a bit of this as I try to explore this in a, in a healthy way. None of it, none of what I'm saying is to invalidate the rightness of that emotion as a, as a, as a first point of response 
we are emotional creatures and we do have feelings and we do care and anger is a response rage is a response and deep sort of sadness and grief and hurt these are valid responses there's no question about that not at all and not for a second but it's it's sort of using that as then the sort of the the currency of of righteousness um or as the currency of a moral position that is dangerous ground and it really you know it, it it i think it ultimately it leads to it leads to dead ends so i think it's something that can be used in a healthy way to inform to inform a desire to do better and to inform a desire to to understand better ways forward and better pathways out of conflict um and I think I do sort of put this into a context of conflict. Um, so I think maybe, you know, a place, a place to start um, would be, you know, th- 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 this idea, of course, like one of, the, one, of the oldest, one of the oldest polarities in the existence, you know, in the history of human existence is, you know, is, is the men versus women polarity the men against women the women against men idea um and in a way it's still it, i think on a deep level it still fuels uh many many sort of presumptions and assumptions about uh about gender and about uh about intentions about uh, what's going on beneath the surface, about outlook, about psychology, um, and it's it's you know it's it's definitely in the mix. But I found myself responding last week, and I've spoken to a couple of male friends about this because I was really interested to hear their take um, on this, you know, on the on the murder uh, and on the subsequent reaction. Because I found myself initially reacting quite defensively to the the all men sort of idea, like all men need to look at themselves, all men need to stand up and be responsible for, you know, generational misogyny and generational male violence, um, and you know, cross cultural violence against women, and. I found myself going, you know what? I don't feel responsible, and thinking, right? Am I am, am I going to be allowed to say that? Um, and I, I mean, and I, and I saw this kind of debate happening on social media, um, and a lot of like, you know, we men need to do this, and we men need to do that, and I found myself sort of trying to look at myself and go, well, I'm pretty comfortable with my own. Um, non-violent non-misogynistic credentials Um, I'm pretty comfortable with my track record um, of being someone who uh, hasn't indulged in um, behaviour that was ever threatening to women that was uh, disrespectful to women that belittled women Um, I've never harassed women um and 
That does not mean that I am a misogyny denier. Misogyny exists. It's real. Um, of course. And I mean, I've spoken about this before and I've written about it before. And what people refer to as, you know, toxic masculinity and the aspects of toxic masculinity that impact women. I've spoken about that and I sort of recognized behavior that would probably be thrown into that category from a very young age and it was a very instinctive reaction in me that I didn't care for it and I've always sort of steered myself away from it Um, and when there's been opportunities to discuss it or express my disapproval of what that behavior might look like I've done so and I've been consistent and you know there might be you might you maybe maybe i'm trying to listen to my own voice here and do i detect i may detect a note of defensiveness but i'm going to own that i'm going to own that because i don't want to be tone deaf and i don't want to invalidate female rage and female hurt and i especially don't want to invalidate the position uh, of women feeling afraid because I can look at this, um, you know, academically and philosophically and historically and psychologically and, you know, try and make clever arguments and present clever frameworks. But none of that changes the fact that many women feel afraid. And I'm very interested in how to, you know, how to be part of making women feel less afraid Um socially so i mean i don't i don't speak for all men i think that would be grotesque arrogance i think that would verge on stupidity i speak for myself um i mean if you want to reduce it down and go well okay well you know who are the men who are closest to me so from a genetic point of view i have three brothers so presumably you know, we're a representative set. But I wouldn't even dare to speak for them. I wouldn't speak for my father. So, you know, and they go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I could speak for, you know, the men in my community. So, like, I grew up in County Wicklow and I grew up in, you know, the area of Rathdrum and Avoca and Ballinaclash. So maybe I can speak for those men. No, it's absurd. And I think, you know, I'm not being disingenuous here and I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to throw shade on women who feel solidarity with other women and women who want to speak for their gender and go, we are sick of being, you know, assaulted objectified belittled affronted negated disempowered whatever that conversation might be whatever that language might look like i'm not trying to throw shade on that i'm not trying to invalidate that but i am owning that i can only speak for myself and i don't represent all men that said i would feel confident the vast majority of my good male friends would i think recognize what i'm talking about um would probably feel themselves and i would certainly feel about them thinking of them knowing them having known some of these guys for over 40 years that they were not the type of guys to 
to behave in a misogynistic way to to indulge in any of that sort of behavior um that's not that hasn't been my experience of those men and i certainly haven't felt that the women in their lives have given any indication that they're that type of man so this idea that you know all men you know are a certain way it doesn't hold a lot of water in my experience um i think there are bad men out there i think there are violent men out there i think there are misogynistic men i think there are sexist men um although i think could we make a distinction between misogyny and sexism there is a distinction there isn't there um i mean you know you know what what, what is 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 sexism you know reducing someone to aspects of their gender and not allowing them to be a fully fleshed out human being uh, certainly i think sexual objectification would fall in there but is does that equate to a hatred of women i mean i find that a far more sinister idea um you know that 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 women are a natural enemy of men that's not my experience and it's never been my experience i mean and i've listened to you know just let's for a second look at this whole idea of toxic masculinity i mean i do believe that there is a feminine equivalent like there's a toxic femininity that directs a sort of a reductive um a reductive frame of men and speaks very freely about men being you know emotionally inadequate uh there's a i think when women infantilize men um that that is a, a version of toxic femininity um and there's you know i i i can remember as a probably you know teenager you know an older teenager in my early 20s even there was there were plenty of you know young women that i knew that would liberally trash men and go men only think with their their private parts they're you know they're they're driven by their sex drives their libidos um you know you know men all men are are bastards that was that i never stopped hearing that um and but i never came away from those conversations thinking all women all women think this way i remember walking away from those conversations thinking well that woman thinks that way or that girl thinks that way and i <laughs> i always went forward in the belief that there's going to be other women out there who like men and haven't become so cynical um and i feel i was very lucky that uh, I, I you know i had relationships with with several of those women who didn't hate men and they didn't hate me not at the start of the relationship anyway um and if they did hate me it wasn't because i was mis- a misogynist it was pro- probably because i was immature and you know i think there's a you know there has been a conflation perhaps of male immaturity and a conflation of the the narrowness of the male sort of view of women um and a sort of a 
conflation of the sort of the casual casual sexism um and sometimes a, you know a version of sexism that men trade in that's part of a, a sense of humor um that is part of a male so it, it, i mean i think it is it, it, there is an aspect of that that's part of sort of male bonding um but you know the the male friends that i referred to earlier i feel that you know if we ever adopt that position we're sort of in on the joke that you don't i, I wouldn't make that joke with someone who i didn't you know intuitively sense was someone who was very respectful of women someone who cared for women someone who saw women as equals and to suggest otherwise would be utterly preposterous um and so then the a sexist jibe or a, a sexist joke becomes you know it, it, that's why it becomes funny because there is no dark agenda underpinning it um and you know i believe that to be the case i'm not trying to i'm not trying to soften the 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 larger implications of sexism but don't tell me if you're a female listener don't tell me that it doesn't flow the other way that women can't make jokes about men uh based on their gender um so the point i was going to make is that i think there's been a a conflation of aspects of masculinity there's been a conflation of aspects of male behavior there's been a conflation of certain gendered behavior in men and it's been conflated with extreme violence and extreme sexual predation so if we're talking about you know battery murder rape um and that gets conflated with a sexist joke or it gets conflated with um you know the male gaze i think that's treacherous territory um and i think that is a disingenuous position i think there's a there's a spectrum um of you know less savory uh, male behavior you know bad male behavior masculinity that we don't approve of and you know misogyny is there on that scale um and I think extreme acts of violence are way up at you know the far end of that scale, very far removed from the experience of most men. Um, and that's something I think that needs to be acknowledged without saying all other men are angels or all other men are great guys or all other men always have women's backs. Um, I mean, that, that, would be, that would be totally naive to talk like that. Um, but that's what I mean about the zero sum idea, either this or that. It's not the case. Men are complex individuals. So are women. This is what we need to be looking at. Uh, and again, I can't stress quickly enough. When we get bogged into this conversation, it seems to move very far away from the reality of a young woman got murdered last week. And... I don't want us to lose sight of the tragedy of that, the import of that, the resonance of that. But as I said earlier, I'm interested in, you know, what is this conversation that needs to be had? Because if there is someone who has, if there's a, a young man who has a, a leaning towards psychopathology, towards violence, 
I'm not sure if that guy is going to be reached by a change in rhetoric. I'm not sure if that guy is going to be reached by positive messaging around masculinity. Now, and he may be, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been a teacher. I've been, I've been that teacher who's gone into a classroom and been very aware of my gender and very aware of the types of things that I've been saying around any flashpoints to do with um, uh, objectification of women um, and very aware of who's in front of me. And I certainly brought that awareness into into the classroom as a young teacher and you know had a look at the role and thought well that's i think and you know to look at the role and go well what is my responsibility here you know it's not just teach the material it's not just open the book on page seven it's not just write down your homework i always felt going into a classroom that the responsibility is far greater than that to go what kind of person are you and what person are you walking into this space with young minds and young people what you know what do you have to offer them um and are you being don't go in there in a careless thoughtless way uh because you're in a position of authority you're in a position of influence you're in a a shaping molding position um you know consciously or not intentionally or not you have an impact by being there um and that is part of this conversation and you know part of the conversation of you know what we see and who we see and the behavior we see and the messaging we see how that does shape us and that feeds into the the the, the cultural argument the argument that culture shapes misogyny that there is to, to to quote my my cousin here at hashtag blessed and um, he was referring to some article he read you know someone referring to the soup of misogyny that young men grow up with this misogyny all around and it shapes their you know it, it's like a, it's like a breeding ground for misogynists it's a breeding ground that plants the seeds of hate hating women and we were both saying well that wasn't our experience and so if we can give men more credit to kind of go, men have the ability to think for themselves. All men have the ability to think for themselves and they can make choices and they can recognize, oh, I find that behavior repellent. I don't like that attitude. I don't like that vibe, that energy. I don't like being a part of that. You can make a choice. And most of the men I know made that choice. And that's not a type of language or an outlook or a behavior that they trade in. Um, And, you know, I think that should be part of the discussion. So, yeah, culture, culturally, I don't know. I mean, I spoke about this. um, I I, I did an episode on the podcast about that was very focused on kind of body shaming um, and female body shaming and female um, objectification, sexual objectification. And, and I, I spoke I spoke about this territory before. Um, and I think, you know, we are living in an age where the, the access to objectified images of women has never been greater. And... Um, and 
you know, that may or may not be in the mix. So, and and and, and this again, if you, if you go back to the sort of the late seventies, early eighties, there was a lot of sort of cultural debate and fear, and you know, arguably hysteria around what were called video nasties, and basically that referred to extremely sort of gory and violent uh, movies often horror movies are are chillers with you know serial killers and you know gore violence sexual violence lots of blood dismemberment etc and there was a sort of a social panic around the impact of seeing these movies um video nasties and I think the research has shown that the idea of causality is pretty unfounded. The idea that seeing these images then causes the, the viewer, the spectator, the watcher to then go out and commit, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the rep- replicable crime in real life. And... There, I'm drawing the connection between the, the the proliferation of, you know, objective objectified imagery of women and the proliferation of pornography, and the provision the the prolifer, bleh, proliferation excuse me the proliferation of, you know, of of female beauty in a highly sort of sexualized uh, presentation or mode in popular media, whether that's you know, music videos or whether that's uh, in movies, um, you know, and even on social media, on Instagram. um, And, you know, that's all out there. But then to kind of go, well, does that make, does that turn men into killers? Is that like, is that in the mix of presenting an idea of a very, you know, very reduced one single aspect idea of femininity, you know, highly sexualized, highly physical, highly, um, uh, I don't know, highly desirable, I suppose, depending on, on, your, on your wiring. Does that make men think, I guess this is the argument, like, you know, that makes men think, oh, well, women are there kind of to be consumed. Women are there to be had. Um, I think that, again, maybe in the immature male mind, there's an aspect of that, but the immature male mind matures, it grows, it develops, it evolves, it becomes more informed, it becomes more nuanced. It starts to recognize, oh, that's just that. And you can create that separation. Now, you take that same imagery and maybe you put that into a misogynistic context. And maybe if there's a culture of misogyny and there's a culture of um, wielding power over women and keeping women in a place, then I think that's getting into sort of toxic territory. And then within that context, if you have someone who is has a, an extreme mental illness and has a, a sociopathology or a psychopathology or you know, whatever diagnosis it might be, and the combination of elements leads to an act of extreme violence, an act of extreme hatred. Um, that is a distortion of of male behaviour. 
Now, a lot of people are arguing it's just the end of the, you know, it's it's the trickle effect. And the, ultimately the trickle becomes, you know, a stream becomes a river, becomes a deluge, becomes, you know, a, you know, a tsunami. Um, that is an argument. And I think maybe you'll find a tiny percent that maybe fall into that. But I would argue that that tiny percentage are products of extreme uh an extreme kind of situation you know either familially or socioeconomically or particularly in terms of you know brain chemistry brain development uh perhaps victims of abuse themselves um and you know and when i say abuse you know that could just be exposed to you know a lot of male violence themselves being you know battered or whatever i don't know it's i mean i i'm not this is not my kind of area of expertise but that is all in the mix and if you want to get if you want to move away from that argument um which i kind of i, I acknowledge the sort of there are valid aspects to that but i think there's a lot of counter evidence that would say it's not definitive and it's not the natural endpoint by any means and in fact only in the smallest percentage of situations is it a natural endpoint but there's another there's another argument if we're talking about you know where does male violence come from there's another argument if you look at um what psychologists say about this and particularly i found an article where someone was looking at the findings of evolutionary psychologists and fundamentally, they were saying that the, the whole history of the male animal, human and otherwise, is one of um, developing to be, to be dominant, developing to compete with, um, you know, threats to property, threats to family, threats to, um, you know, food, whatever it might be. And so the male animal and so the human animal, uh, you know, a man is evolutionarily um, evolutionarily set up to be stronger, is evolutionarily set up to be more aggressive, more competitive. And, you know, testosterone is is a part of that. Um, and I personally feel like when we talk about male violence and female safety my question is and you know this is i'm not saying this with any satisfaction or pleasure and i'm not saying it cynically but are women ever going to be safe from male violence really and that's not i'm not trying to be negative i'm not this is not a doom and gloom dystopian viewpoint but the male animal is always going to be stronger, broadly speaking. And the, I, I do believe that that is in the mix when men commit these crimes. One of the reasons, you know, one of the, if not one of the reasons, one of the, the facilitating or, um, uh, what do I want to say? The, the, one of the aspects that gives that man the green light, that gives that man permission is purely the sense of ability. Like, I am able to do this. I can overpower that woman. 
and that's that's underneath all of the 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 the, the, the you know the diseased thinking the distorted view that's on top of whatever that man's trauma is that's on top of the brain chemistry um sorry it's underneath all that like that sense deep down that well if i chose to be this deranged if i chose to act out if i chose to commit this act of violence if i chose to be a sexual predator underpinning that speculation or underpinning those kind of dark fantasies is the belief or the conviction that I will be able to act out on this. And in that regard, you could argue that, well, that's probably never going to change, that men will always have that power. I remember I remember watching the second season of True Detective, um, the much sort of uh, maligned and I think underrated, very underrated second season of True Detective, which uh, which featured uh, Vince Vaughn. Maybe that casting didn't work that well. I thought a brilliant Colin Farrell. Um, Taylor Kitsch was in that as well. And a great performance, I thought, from um, Rachel McAdams, um, who was playing uh, like a homicide detective who was deeply deeply um you know scarred by some childhood experiences and she was equipped she always equipped herself with um a lethal knife at which she was very adept at using and she practiced stabbing with you know with great ferocity um like a, a mannequin a, a dummy and i don't know if it was a male colleague was asking her is that really necessary i mean you're, you're packing a gun as well and i think her line fundamentally i mean i'm paraphrasing but fundamentally she was saying you know i'm going out there into a world when you know basically every man is capable of overpowering me every man is you know this percentage stronger than me so if i can't get the gun i need something else that i know is going to protect me and do that damage and I remember just in, you know, in the body of her character, like the way it was expressed, the way she tapped into something, the, 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 just the sort of the reality check wrapped up in her fear, wrapped up in her defiance, wrapped up in her, her, you know, her own sense of kind of futility maybe, although she chose to be the character, chose to be a homicide detective, so she was out there making a difference. Um, and there's a very scary sequence later on in the, the, the series where she is in a vulnerable place because she's been drugged and it, you know, it kind of taps into her, you know, as the audience, we, we tap into her fears because she's expressed them previously um, really good and worth checking out um, the second season. Um, so anyway, the, the kind of the, the, the discourse continues and I think there are, of course, you know, there, <laughs> there's nothing but historical precedent for crime against women, for violence against women, for women being, you know, raped and battered and disempowered, for women having no status, for women being a possession of men, the property of men. And we like to think that we have evolved socially, culturally into better times um, where women are getting ever more closer to that goal of equality um now 
ever more closer not there yet you know realistically if we're talking about you know wage equality um status equality um but i feel it's happening i feel it's happening i feel the you know the me too movement for all the kind of um the complexity of the me too movement the its own sort of zero-sum narrative or the way it was hijacked into being something maybe less nuanced um I feel that yeah, like there was that was the start of something. It you know it that was a catalytic catalytic moment itself, um, and one which personally, and again, I don't speak for all men. Personally, I was not threatened by it, um, and I still do not feel threatened by it. And I welcome, I welcome, you know, I welcome social economic av- advancement for anyone who feels that they've been disenfranchised. Um, I mean, that, that's part of the larger conversation. Um, I mean, this idea that men don't feel afraid, that men don't go out there in the world with fear, that's also something of... Uh, um, oh, there's a word I was looking for there. Anyway, uh, I was going to say a, a shibboleth, <laughs> a myth. It's not true. Do you think I've done, <laughs> do you think someone who's done karate for 30 years isn't coming from a place of fear? You know, martial arts attracts people who are fearful. That's why they learn martial arts. That's why they learn self-defense systems. Um, it attracts other people as well. But a huge percentage of people who take up martial arts are doing so because they want to protect themselves. And huge numbers of men start martial arts the vast majority of my martial arts students are boys um although i i have a couple of female students and i love seeing them rock up and you know i there's you know there is a discussion to be had about you know should we be teaching self-defense in schools should that be part of the curriculum um why wouldn't you want uh, everyone to know how to defend themselves um but yeah, you know, my cousin and I were discussing this the other day. We were talking about, well, you know, do you feel afraid? Um, and he was saying, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we don't. We probably don't. We don't feel afraid in the same way women do. And I was saying, well, perhaps if we were part of a of a group, if we were part of a, a sector of society, if we'd been put into a category. So maybe if we were, so we're like two white straight guys. So theoretically, we're at the top of the food chain. But maybe if we were two white gay guys. We wouldn't feel so safe because homophobic violence is out there too. Maybe if we were of a certain faith, we might feel that there'd be we'd be victims of religious violence. Um, so, you know, there, there's probably fifty other different ways you could create subsets and go. They're going to be victimized, and they're going to be victimized. Um, but this isn't about those other groups. This particular conversation is about, you know, women and their experience of fear. Um, and there is probably, you know, there's probably another conversation to be had around, you know, to, to just to just quickly return to the idea of the historical context and the, you know, the evolution uh, or not as the case may be of social attitudes and gendered attitudes that were cultivated under patriarchal systems and patriarchal structures and how they've been handed down consciously and otherwise 
um, and that contributes to the it, it, it contributes to the, the larger frame of what women and I'm speaking for women now but I mean this is what I've read and consumed what I feel women feel that they're up against um, and so if then we're at a moment where this is a what I'm trying to see is I'm trying to see this as an opportunity for for conversation an opportunity for deepening our understanding across you know across the gender divide for deeping deepening our understanding of what's not working um, and so I was trying to think of it last week and I was looking at my defensive and my initial defensive reaction and I thought well, hold on a second if, if I fundamentally feel I've conducted myself well in the context of this uh, area of um, gendered violence and misogyny and sexism, um, then I shouldn't feel the need to defend myself. And so I was trying to view the debate differently and think, okay, so I experienced some of this reaction as criticism of men. And I, if I take that, and kind of go, okay, well, if I believe the all men theory, then this criticism hurts me. But I don't believe in the all men theory. Therefore, I don't have to be threatened by the criticism. I can listen to criticism from a position of, of strength, from a position of confidence that uh, I've conducted myself well, um, from a position of security, um, and from a position of humility. And so... The, the humility part is, even though I think I've done well on a level, that doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, there are maybe areas of my behavior that can be criticized, that can be examined more thoroughly. Um, and I think I would, you know, that, that's sort of, that's what, that's what I would offer in this conversation as a starting point to go, well, okay, you know, women are hurt. You know, and I'm not I'm not talking about physically hurt. I'm talking like, you know, you know, women you know, deep down in their sort of their, their in their psyche, in their in their sense of in their sense of selves and in their sense of solidarity, they're wounded, they're hurt, they've been kicked um by yet another one of their sisters being taken. And women want to express their anger. They want to express their frustration. They want to express their rage. And maybe it's a time for men to to shut up and listen on one level to go, well, okay, well, you know, what speak, you know, say what what do you want to say? How do you want to say it? Uh, and let that venting happen and receive it without judgment. Receive it because it's helpful. It's actually helpful to let um, the aggrieved party express themselves it's helpful to them to feel they are being heard it's helpful to let them express something and then after that you can say well okay well what you know what would you like how would you like this to play out how can we go forward in a better way and I think you know because, because I think there's a danger when we get into that defensive position you know, and maybe I'm guilty of it already in this podcast. So if like I've been listening to oh, toxic masculinity, a phrase which I don't really care for, which I don't think is constructive or valuable. I think there's 
other ways to to talk about that um to, to talk about the behavior that ends up being described as toxic masculinity for me it's too much of a an umbrella an umbrella term but i think what can happen with feeling defensive is we get into point scoring uh, i'll give you an example of this in my own marriage <laughs> a couple of weeks ago uh, i was on the phone at dinner which is not that common um and my wife was you know she was kind of instantly annoyed um because my phone was very busy and for some reason I'd made the decision that I needed to keep going with a couple of conversations that were about logistics or making plans and she just kind of hit me with a tone can you, you know please can we have no phones at the table and I took it defensively um and I felt I was being sort of chastised uh, or you know reprimanded like a, a you know a scolded child and <laughs> I tried to stop myself I was kind of sitting on my kind of initial defensive and angry response. And then I said, oh, well, you know, you do this too sometimes. Um, Sort of petulantly. And my wife was just like, oh, God. I mean, I could just tell she didn't say it to me, but I could tell she was really annoyed. (laughs) And I mean, it was me just basically trying to score a point and go, you too, you do this too. And it's like, it wasn't, it actually wasn't helpful in the moment. And afterwards we discussed it with a bit more, a bit more nuance and it was all good. And, you know, I was totally in agreement with my wife. So, you know, the way we, you know, and by the way, my wife's a woman and I'm a man. And so I think that's relevant here because the way we speak to each other, and I'm I'm really, I'm a big believer in this, the way we speak to each other, how we communicate with each other is really important in terms of resolving conflict, in terms of feeling that there's, you know, a decent base to go forward that there's a trust that we're being listened to and respected. And let's extend that then to this gendered debate around you know, men and women. Um, and I think the way we communicate is really important. And you know, receiving a lot of, um, I suppose, anger, and there's a lot of sort of accusation in that anger, again, because there's a lot of hurt behind it. It's to try and receive it without sort of you know coming into that kind of pearl clutching position um and being kind of horrified and offended i mean not me i'm not one of those men it doesn't really contribute much to the conversation at the moment so instead go okay that's what you need to say well let's see what we can do and i'm going to try and sort of wrap this up in the next sort of 10 or 15 minutes because there's a a few different things I, i want to sort of look at um which may help sort of flesh this out and i think um yeah there's sort of there's three there's three main ideas that i want to look at and the first is i want to go back because there's been a lot of talk about you know you know young men boys what they're exposed to um and i feel i negotiated a lot of those pitfalls but let's be real you know you're a kid what the hell do you know what level of nuance can you bring to bear when you're five six seven not a lot so i'm just going to give you my own frame in terms of my relationship with the opposite sex um so i feel basically as a kid my view was first you're like okay i'm a boy that's a girl and that has no bearing on anything for a while so 
it's just you're coexisting there at a very young age in those early play schools and the early classes of of education and they're just your classmates in my case classmates because i went to uh uh what the hell am i trying to say um co-educational boys and girls in school not single sex schools so primary and secondary school that was my experience so you start off and it's just kind of a bit like yeah whatever there's just there's nothing really on the radar and then you realize all right okay girls are different right okay so it's a bit more it becomes a bit more explicit and of course the most obvious way that expresses itself is in terms of clothes colors of clothes perhaps the sort of the gender stereotyping that happens uh, you know what you're interested in what I'm interested in what's being laid out here what you're consuming in your school books and of course there's bodies and hairstyles and all the rest so that kind of they're the the, the initial exposure all oh, right they're different to us grand so but at that point it's still you know there's there's sort of ignorance there's ignorance at that young age of maybe the sort of the different wiring or the different thinking or what girls are integrating into their viewpoint what they've inherited what's being handed down in terms of how they view boys the opposite sex what they're looking at you know on tv how they view female sexuality so there's a lot of ignorance and then you get a little bit older and you realize in my case being a straight guy you realize oh there's desire so then you have desire and that desire starts maybe late primary school and goes right through and my argument is at that point then you've got desire coupled with ignorance there's still loads of ignorance there's all these blank areas there's the unknown and you're kind of getting educated in sort of uh you know sex education and biology as a young teenager and unless i mean by the way i'm as i mentioned earlier i referred to three brothers i didn't grow up with sisters so my mum was the only woman in the house so that of course would be a limiting factor um in being exposed to uh, um exposed to contemporaries uh you know of the opposite gender um so that was in the mix but you got so there's desire and ignorance so then there's this kind of huge desire for the opposite sex but you've no knowledge <laughs> and you're completely ignorant you don't really know how to behave so you're just kind of finding your way and with men that usually involves humor and teasing provocation uh you know that kind of jostling uh for attention um because you're trying to you know win favor and gain the interest of the you know the girls that you're attracted to um and there might be other ways to attract that attention through you know your your achievements in sport or in the classroom or you know whatever it might be your you know your your particular hobbies your skill set you might be playing music already whatever you know for god's sake i mean this is really obvious what i'm saying but there's still ignorance so then when do you start to get exposure so maybe you have your first girlfriend your first kiss your first foray you know into sort of you know a bit of sexual experience um so then you've got desire and exposure and over time exposure becomes experience and that really is the beginning of getting to know the you know the the, the opposite sex and you know again i'm only speaking for myself and so I'm, I'm presuming there's an equivalent from you know you know traveling the other way from female to male and equivalents for 
other sexual orientations, if that's in the mix. It, it doesn't feel as relevant to this conversation today. So then, as you get older again, then what you're doing is you're meeting women. You've still got the, the, the desire, and in my case, that desire for you know the the relationship the the companionship the friendship the desire sexually the desire for that affirmation of someone that you're attracted to and then what you're doing is you're bringing you're bringing that knowledge and now you've got history you've got history of other relationships and there's an evolution there's an evolution of thought you're bringing a more sophisticated frame again i shouldn't say you're i'm talking about myself i was bringing a more sophisticated frame to my my second relationship, my third relationship, my fourth relationship, um, and to how I met women and viewed women, and as I dealt with my own stuff, as I resolved stuff in myself, I was able to bring better things to my relationships with women, and really that led to ultimately meeting my wife and meeting each other as equals. Um, and that really was the beginning of our connection, having both had relationships, long-term relationships previously that hadn't, you know, ended up the way we wanted. And we sort of met with, you know, a, a nice level of experience with a similar sort of view of what we wanted in relationship and, and crucially, you know, huge attraction to each other and sort of a recognition of something in each other, um, but I would say that was my first relationship to come in feeling equal. Um, so in previous relationships, I either felt, you know, in a much sort of, in a much kind of lower place than my partner or in a sort of a higher place. And those relationships didn't really end, uh, you know, that well. Um, so I'm just trying to put that into the mix of, you know, how we get to know each other, you know, from, you know, from a gender point of view. And... You know, relationships are very instructive if you're if you're open to learning, <laughs> if you want to kind of know this person you're spending your life with. Um, so I think that is typically what I still bring to my, my female friendships. Um, I'm always interested in their perspective. And certainly I I use my female friends um you know, in in very similar ways to my male friendships, it's 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 all about sort of, you know, being challenged, being informed, sharing uh, the internal life, and they're, you know, my good kind of female friends. They enrich my life no less than my male friendships. Um, so that's one aspect to this, that, and I what I'm trying to say is like I feel my experience isn't that rare. I think there's, I know lots of men and they like women in, you know, broadly, not just they like women sexually, like women are friends, women are, you know, <laughs> it is a meeting of equals. It, you know, and any other option, as I referred to earlier, would be preposterous and absurd and self-harming. Um, now, I think another strand of this, and I mean, I'm jumping here, when I think of this murder that happened last week, and at the end of last week's episode, I referred to the, the death of Sinead O'Connor's son. Um, Sinead O'Connor, the, the Irish musician, singer, songwriter, um, great sort of female kind of icon, I think, 
um, and great sort of, you know, truth teller. Um, and I was reflecting on you know her terrible loss, and you know I, I was speaking about the the sadness that you know a young man who I understand had his history of mental health issues, but that he chose to end his own life, and I spoke about that, and then we had this this murder of Ashley Murphy, um, and I thought. Well, all of this, you know, you know, this expression of male violence, this incident of male violence and a young man a week before killing himself. Um, and there was a gangland murder as well, I think, in the same sort of seven day period. And I thought all of these incidents, um, they're all facets of male crisis or a crisis in masculinity because you know suicide is an act of male violence um when it's a man of course you know women commit suicide also um but that is an act of male violence and i really feel strongly about this that there is this you know this this spectrum of male crisis and as i mentioned earlier i don't like this phrase toxic masculinity I prefer to think of, you know, these versions of masculinity that are really problematic, that are, in the case of Ashley Murphy, absolutely reprehensible and tragic, um, that these are versions of broken masculinity. These are versions of traumatized masculinity. They're versions of stunted masculinity. And there's a huge range. And I think... If we can start viewing what we're referring to as toxic masculinity in these terms and start to think more empathetically and compassionately around the you know around the area of male pain of male um you know of of the sources of male anger um of the sources of male frustration and start thinking very conscientiously and proactively about creating avenues for the healthy release and negotiation and expression of male pain, whether that's in a male-only space, whether it's in a male and female space, whether it's in a community space, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're providing that outlet, if we are validating and I mean this and I really, I mean, I'm really committed to this idea, you know, to validate male pain, to validate male vulnerability um, and to validate the expression of that vulnerability, to validate the expression of that pain and to to allow, you know, men of any age to feel there's a space I can go into and be and be naked um emotionally psychologically naked to be vulnerable to feel it's a safe space to express this and that is a i think that is a worthwhile social cultural goal to go can we do that for men um because i think there would be a positive effect i think there would be an extremely positive knock-on effect 
for everyone in society, for anyone that that man comes in contact with, and especially for people that feel vulnerable around men. You know, and let's let's just call that and say that's that's women and that's children and that's also other men. So I think that is part of this conversation. Um, and none of that, none of that is to deprioritize or delegitimize women's pain. That is not to delegitimize the female experience. That is not to say, hey, we, should, we shouldn't be talking about Ashleen Murphy. We shouldn't be talking about victims of, we shouldn't be talking about female victims of male violence. I don't agree with that at all. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that part of this conversation does need to focus on how are we accommodating uh, you know, male, male suffering? How are we providing outlets, healthy, supported outlets? And you know, this should be a social and cultural commitment and not just something we go, ah, oh, well, the health services will deal with this or the guards will deal with this. They can't. They're not equipped. They, you know, the, the Irish government, for whatever, you know, you know, for a variety of reasons, they haven't found the resources or the political will to really make this happen. And, you know, it's the, the pressure that the, you know, the great people who work in Irish health services or mental health service, the pressure that they're under is phenomenal. But they're doing the absolute best they can. And they're working in a... You know, in a in a system at breaking point, um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, that so that's that's what I'm trying to you know, I'm trying to articulate this. You know, the how important it is to really put that in the frame. How are we looking at male suffering, male pain, male crisis, and how are we helping all of us, men and women, um, and so to sort of sort of conclude i have this one other idea i was thinking because my wife said i'd like to hear men talking to other men i'd like to see a crowd of men with a loudspeaker addressing other men and what would you say to them and i found myself reflecting on that and thinking well you know for a long time i've been banging my own drum about you know trying to be a better man been very aware of being in a position to be a role model of a type in certain capacities uh, standing in classrooms standing in uh, martial arts training um, settings um, addressing young men and young women um, I've never you know I've, I've always been very conscious of the responsibility of being in that position and I, you know, I, t- I take that idea that whether I like it or not, I am a representative of the male sex. I, you know, you, you know that's, you know, some men will be judged on my behaviour. Assumptions will be made about men based on my behaviour in, you know, for, for better or worse, in good or bad contexts. And I have to accept that and own if I've, you know, if I haven't conducted myself well at times, I own it. I own it. I put my hand up and say, okay, well, I have to look at that and go, how do I want to go forward? So what I was thinking is, if I was addressing men, this is how I would think of it. And I think I'd be saying to these men, these men, the men of this island, 
you know, my fellow countrymen and any other man who happens to be living here and working here and living a life here, because they're on this island too, and no less important than, you know, another Irish man. I think the way I'd frame it is, this is our tribe. On this island, where we live, where we're living our lives, this is our tribe. And every woman we meet is in the tribe. And every child we meet is in the tribe. And we are responsible for the wellness of the tribe. We are responsible for the strength of the tribe. We are responsible for the the health of the tribe. We are responsible for the happiness of the tribe. We are responsible for the success of the tribe. And we cannot, we cannot contribute to the destruction of people in the tribe. We cannot stand by and let the women of our tribe be murdered. We cannot stand by and let the women of our tribe be raped. We cannot stand by and let children be violated. Because when we do that, we're hurting the tribe. The entire tribe suffers. And I think women need to know that, that men suffer too. We suffer when a crime like this happens. Our masculinity takes a beating when a man kills a woman regardless of what state he's in or where his head's at or what his background is it doesn't matter it's a stain and I accept that I can see how that hurts all men and how women then view men and think that's what you're like then is it that's what you're capable of so to my mind it feels like this this very weird time we find ourselves in this this crisis of of health with the pandemic, but also, in a way, this crisis of capitalism, this economic crisis where so many people are feeling shut out, left behind, where the capitalist model fundamentally is you go after your own thing, you pursue your own dream, you look after your own, you chase, you chase the dream, you chase the fantasy, you chase those dollars for yourself. That is a part of capitalist ideology. And that has contributed to a fracturing of community. It's contributed to a fracturing of connectivity. And the online world has contributed to that fracturing as well. Because we're not interacting with each other for real. We're not interacting with each other in the flesh where consequences are far more real and far more present and resonant and felt. We dehumanize each other when we're only interacting via our screens and devices and on Instagram and making funny comments here and saying bitchy smart arse things there. It's all dehumanizing. It's not making us smarter. It's not bringing us closer. It's not deepening our understanding. Quite the opposite. It's alienating us. And so if you are a man who is willing to accept the idea that maybe the tribe is a good thing, that tribalism so often used in a negative context if that can be seen as a very positive thing, that you can stand up and say, I care about the women 
of this island. I care about any woman on this island because she's part of my tribe. I'm part of her tribe and I want her to feel that guy has my back. And maybe if we all embrace that idea and ultimately this is all I have to offer because I can't fix a broken brain. I can't fix psychopathology. I can't fix male violence. But maybe, maybe we can go forward and just have a sense of, do you know what? We actually can help women feel safer by standing up and owning a certain responsibility within the tribe, by being willing to stand up and go, there's actually a more honourable way to behave as a man. There's a more honourable way to behave as a member of this tribe. And I want I want to deserve that respect that I might get. I want to feel that I'm seen as a good man in this tribe and someone who cares about the tribe maybe more than himself. I don't think that's a bad thing. So that's it. That's all I've got for you today. I hope, I hope I've contributed in some way to this discussion. I do care about it. I care about how masculinity is perceived. I care about my own role in this. Uh, and I care about having better conversations, more nuanced conversations. I care about being heard. I care about being listened to. I care about the exchange between men and women because we're here together. We're living here together. It's happening now. It is real life. There are real consequences. And we can all do better. All of us. So that's it. I'm going to leave you with that. Um, and if you found time to listen to this, I hope it's it stimu- stimulated something positive in you. And you can share a thought for Ashling Murphy and her family and her pupils and her friends and colleagues. And share a thought for any woman who has suffered at the hands of a man and spare a thought for the men who have failed to find a better path, for the men who have failed to control their rage, their violence, who have failed to educate themselves, who have failed to value women and failed to protect women from themselves, uh, from the men, I mean, in that case. Um, okay, that's it. Listen, um, as always, you can find me on social media, on instagram it's the clear out podcast it's the clear out podcast on youtube it's the clear out podcast on facebook it's the clear out two number two that is the clear out two on twitter um if you want to leave some comments um i'd love to get some feedback um i'd love to get some love if you're enjoying what you're hearing and again if you want to spread some financial love and send some financial love my way you can do so using the supporter link which will be uh, in the information where you're listening to this podcast or the Patreon link if you want to make an ongoing, regular, small donation. Um, that's what keeps these independent podcasts alive. Um, that is uh, patreon.com forward slash the clear out. So there you go. It has been a bit of a long one, but it kind of needed the time. And as I said, I hope I've contributed something positive or Uh, thought-provoking to the debate okay mind yourselves take care stay safe i'll talk to you soon all the best good luck bye